This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. We're here at CBC, which was in person this year. I'm super excited to actually be here and see everybody. Uh, sitting across from me is Sean Burns from Phase 3 Brewing. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. Thank you. Glad, glad to be here. Glad it, to be out and about. It's a conversation that we've wanted to have for a little bit a little bit of time, and uh, it was just great that you were here and we yeah. could do this. Um, coming off of our stout issue, 2021 stout issue, you had some fantastic scores in there, a 95 and a 98 for uh, two of your barrel-aged beers. Um, you've won numerous uh, awards at the Festival of Barrel-Aged Beers in Chicago, um, certainly uh, have made a name for Phase 3, and the, also the past uh, kind of brewing uh, places that you've worked for that. We're going to kind of walk through that history, sure. um, how you got to where you are, and why you make the beers the way that you do um, that are so impactful and interesting in this kind of barrel-aged space. Yeah. So yeah, it'll be a good barrel-aged episode of the podcast. But before we do that, like your flagship beer, you can rely on G&D Chillers for the same quality and consistency. G&D guarantees that every chiller they build will hit 28 degrees without breaking a sweat. They never stop. They draft, they craft, they service each and every brewery, big or small, all in an effort to build one hell of a chiller. For nearly 30 years, GD has been committed to cold. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com. This episode is also brought to you by BSG Hop Solutions. Meet the latest in the BSG Hop Solutions portfolio, Sativa. Strong expressions of stone fruit, floral, and resinous pine flavors and aromas define this blend crafted specifically for use in hazy IPAs and other hop-forward beers. Sativa is ideal for aroma, whirlpool, and dry hop additions to hazy and juicy IPAs or for any other hoppy styles where a combination of citrus, tropical fruit, and pine aromatics are desired. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more or call 1-800-374-2739. So, Sean, we normally kick off the podcast with a little bit about your history. Uh, talk to me about your arc through brewing and uh, you know that kind of path you took professionally, first on a... On a you know, personal passion level and then, uh, you know, pursuing it professionally. Yeah. Uh, try to keep it short here for you. <laughs> I don't want to get too, too crazy, but, uh, my, my career kind of started, I think a lot like, uh, like most, uh, professional brewers, uh, you know, in the garage, uh, doing small five gallon batches, sure. uh, that kind of thing. And, um, at that time I was, uh, working at a, uh, chain brew pub, um, as no- nothing to do with the brewery, um, all front of house stuff and, uh, kind of, you know, got in, got into beer and decided to, uh, start helping in the back. Uh, so I started helping, uh, you know, clean kegs, polish tanks, grain out all the, all the stuff the brewer didn't want to do. Sure, uh, sure. So kind of got my feet wet and I managed to actually enjoy that, uh, aspect of it too. Um, it was just a cool, cool seeing it, uh, from that angle. Um, eventually I ended up, uh, pursuing, uh, a degree in it. So I went to Siebel, uh, in Chicago and, uh, graduated and then ended up getting a full-time position uh at that at that chain uh worked my way from assistant to head brewer and eventually to regional brewer and then uh uh left there but during during the last year year and a half that i was there uh the the haze craze was kind of starting sure, when it was, sure. you know back when it was new uh and we i i noticed that and uh started kind of pursuing that and wanted to bring that to the the chicago market and at that time there's only maybe one or two other breweries that were even kind of, uh, starting to do it. Uh, so we, or I, I started doing it there and, uh, worked out really well. Uh, I, I was pretty proud of myself. The first batch actually sure. turned out pretty well. So it was, uh, it was, it was a good, good start. Um, and then that kind of coincided with, uh, a stout release, um, that we had done a f- few months previous uh, to that. And, uh, that kind of started, which was, which, most brew pubs uh don't don't tend to package a lot at least back then sure, um, sure. So, so this was all new and it was kind of like how do we get this fire going here at, at the brew pub and i'm like well people are buying packaged beer people want you know especially in chicago with, right, with right. stouts and bourbon county and stuff so people are just like you know that, that was kind of my like hey we want people to get re-engaged with this brand we need to we need to yeah. offer them some packaged like 
stouts and stuff. Also, but a weird move for a kind of larger chain Very. brew pub chain to try to get into even brewing that kind yes. of style or, or thinking that people would care that much about it. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it was it was absolutely weird. It was like the first time that that was really happening. Uh, and, that you know, they had 30-something locations. So Yeah, to, I remember to be, hearing about those beers, like that what, yeah. that one location <laughs> with that, you know, right. Yeah, it was very, very uh, strange. There was a lot of eyebrows uh, raised at that time when any time sure. someone heard sure. about it. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, that took off. So so I had a small little space where I started working with, uh, I think, four barrels were the, were the first time I ever filled. Um, and, yeah, we, we released that. Uh, took, uh, I think, like three weeks to sell out of the tickets for that. Um, but <laughs> but the, the little, we kind of made a day out of it, and it, it actually turned out really cool. We did a, a variant called... Uh, uh, cocoa chaos was, was, the, was the name of it. And it was, a uh, there's barrel aged out agent on cocoa nibs kind of where I first, uh, started using those. Um, but that was the kind of the star of the show, uh, that day. And that kind of led into, uh, a series of beers after that, that kind of focused around cocoa nibs also. Um, and, and then we did, an, you know, one more release, but either way, kind of throughout this like years, just kind of making a, a pretty big impact in the in the Chicago market and a lot of people kind of looking our way, which was really cool to see. Um, so that kind of caught the attention of some some guys down in uh, a, a suburb 30 minutes south of where I was at there. And uh, yeah, we started they, they asked me if, you know, I'd start start up their their brewery with them uh, as their head brewer at the time. And I uh, did that for about a year and a half and just kind of, yeah, I mean, everything kind of just was crazy. Uh, sure, like sure. you mentioned, there was some Fobab medals won uh, during that time, some long lines. There were some releases. like uh, Chicago news helicopters <laughs> circling <laughs> yeah. over lines yes. of seven or 800 people at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit, a little bit of, you started <laughs> off with people wanting what you did uh, very quickly like that. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, honestly, looking back, it's a little bit of a blur. Uh, things were just moving so fast and, uh, but it was, it was really, really, really fun. Um, we did that, uh, for and, we, a, and we did a breakout brewer story we did, on yeah. that brewery, more brewing, uh, yeah. back, uh, when you were there. And yep. of course that, uh, you know, things continued and then you decided to break out and, uh, do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, in March of 2019, uh, the general manager who happens to be my uh, best friend, uh, uh, him and I, and my wife kind of decided like, you know, we're, we're kind of busting our butts uh, over here and uh, we'd like to kind of do try it on our own, see if we can sure, do it. We sure. kind of got walked them to a, into a good spot. Uh, they expanded and stuff. Yeah. So uh, we felt good kind of just like, all right, let's go do this on our own. And so, yeah, in March of 2019, we started phase three. So hopefully we can put that together that we got phase one, uh, the first brew pub and then more uh, phase two and then phase three. Uh, kind of it's pretty cheeky right yeah, there. Yeah, pretty cheeky. Uh, so yeah, we're that that's kind of where that came from. And so yeah, we started contract brewing uh, out of a, a smaller brewery that was uh, up in Lake Zurich, Illinois. Um, but it was basically turnkey. It was like ready to go. We were able to walk in, and start brewing. No, not not sure. any real downtime for us. So that that made it really uh, ideal. And uh, yeah, we third batch of beer i think we brewed no it was uh, the fifth and sixth batch of beer that we brewed uh was a stout so it was like we we knew we knew where we were <laughs> right. going we knew where we needed to take it it was going into tanks quickly because yes. you needed to let it age so yes. yeah yeah it had to be the thing exactly so uh yeah we got we got going right away um you know mo mostly focusing on hazies and stuff uh and uh but but always kind of at, i guess at phase three uh two though trying to hold the roots of of that phase one uh where we're doing pub ales and stuff like that yeah. uh you know whether it be a lager or or more of a an actual traditional like pub ale but we've we've done some throwbacks uh that kind of are similar recipes uh to stuff we were doing back then that we just right. enjoyed drinking got us into beer so uh we always kind of hold our ground there um, so you went from contract brewing but yeah. you now own the brewery right we do yeah uh so in it's kind of a complicated story but for for all all uh for to keep the story short, uh, in January of 2020, so shortly before the pandemic started, uh, we purchased all the equipment, yeah. um, uh, it, w which was mutually beneficial for, for both sure, parties sure. there, which was, which was nice. But, uh, yeah, we ended up purchasing all the equipment and assumed the, the lease, uh, shortly after and kind of just, uh, yeah, took over on that front. Um, then 
And then uh, actually just this year, we ended up purchasing the building that, that uh, we were in. And then in, in addition to some other yeah. uh, units adjacent uh, to kind of expand and grow kind of settle in a little bit but sure sure yeah, it's been, been a little <laughs> more control of your destiny then. absolutely yeah 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 no that's fantastic and and then of course you know you also and i did i should have mentioned this at the top you launched a whole hard seltzer side we side did yeah brand too yes called of Lulz. course right yeah we should just talk about hard seltzer the entire episode no, I'm just, <laughs> um, <laughs> no we we uh we're watching you know uh and it was something we weren't really sure where where that was going to go we obviously saw the big guys doing it and those right, were right. working really well but they have very uh nice equipment and filtration setups that we just didn't have uh, right. being that we weren't into seltzer um but we we saw some uh some other uh cool ideas i, th I thought that were out there that were very similar to stuff we were doing the heavily treated sure, stuff sure. so it was like well i think we could do that you know um like that that wouldn't require the filtration type setups that uh you know these perfectly clear uh, You're already making these heavily fruited uh, American sour beers, exactly. and so it's just a little different base that you don't have to spend as much time lacto uh, acidifying. Hundred <laughs> percent. So, so we saw we yeah, saw the writing yeah. on the wall. There it was like, yep, like we can we can jump into this, and we did, and uh, spun that off as a, a little bit of a different brand. Uh, obviously, just being that it's seltzer, we wanted to right. play with it a little different. Uh, a little bit of a breath of fresh air too when we're working on projects for for that specific uh brand or for, or for the seltzers and stuff and kind of get out of the phase three uh mentality when we're doing stuff like that um but yeah uh that that worked out and then we started a uh, pink lemonade one over the over the summer and that's been doing uh wonderful for us uh people seem to really like that and that's yeah, seltzer <laughs> all, all the hip things these days <laughs> seriously sure sure <laughs> Well, we're going to talk about bring some stouts. Uh, yeah. You know, I think that's, uh, like you said, it's an early focus. It's something that uh, the, your local Chicago market and, of course, the more broader national trading market, for that matter, mm -hmm. of, uh, of beer geeks uh, have always been interested in or yeah. have been interested since you started making them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've certainly have staked a reputation on that. So we're going to dive in and talk a little bit about how you brew those. But first, a brewery might have 99 problems, but your fruit supplier shouldn't be one. Old Orchard is already known for their quality concentrates, but they also pride themselves on consistent product and reliable supply. When brewers need assistance, Old Orchard is just an email, phone call, and even a text away. Based in Greater Grand Rapids, Michigan, better known as Beer City USA, Old Orchard is core to the brewing community. To join their fruit family, learn more at www.oldorchard.com brewer. Also, are you ready to brew like a pro? Pro brew has the equipment, systems, and technology to take your brewery production to the next level. Check out www.probrew.com for ProCarb inline carbonation technology, ProFill rotary filling and seaming can fillers, the Alchemator inline alcohol separation system, 7 to 50 barrel brew houses, and more. ProBrew offers the craft beer industry innovative solutions to help you brew like a pro. Go to www.probrew.com for more info. So where did the stout thing come from? What was it that just said, hey, I think I can make these and I think I can you know, find a way to make these in a compelling way that will you know, make our mark? I mean, you were in a crowded market in Chicago. Bourbon County set the tone. They're pioneers in that kind of field. Yep. Um, they brew some fantastic beers. Corporate ownership aside, the actual beers and the, the liquid in the bottle and the glass, like they're fantastically well-made beers. Yep. Um, you know, and certainly in the the Midwest in general, there is a pretty strong scene around barrel aging. And of course, people from that Goose Island program are now working all over the place. We kind of you know map that that uh, like sphere of influence, and you can see it everywhere from Ozark. Uh, you know, in Arkansas to uh, Eric Ponce at Firestone, like all these alumni. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just like, you know, you've got a lot of talented people out there around, yeah. the, around the country who've you know been focused on making beers this way. So what uh, what pushed you to go into that realm and how did you decide or how did you start to kind of formulate what your beers were going to be? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, you hit it pretty much on the head as far as location goes. Uh, Chicago's just I mean, it's people love their barrel aged stouts in chicago they I mean, do they, they do you know Bur bourbon county set the tone like you said they um, love things they can trade in general but they really yeah they, <laughs> yes. they love drinking those too. yes absolutely um but yeah i mean having having such a high standard uh beer uh barrel aged stout like that right in your backyard yeah you know you're kind of like we you can't you can't make anything less than this you sure, know like this, sure. the bar has been set like it has to be as good or better yeah uh, as this beer so 
definitely went into it knowing that having that mentality and knowing that it, it needed to uh, kind of wow people right off the bat. Um, but yeah, it took a lot of influence uh, from Bourbon County back back in the day, back at uh, at, at phase one, you know, um, <laughs> definitely yeah. had a lot of influence. I'd say the recipes changed so much over the years that uh, right. there's probably very little at this point that that really is reminiscent of of those recipes back then yeah i mean even over the last six or seven years like trends in barrel aged stout yeah. like have they've definitely shifted they they definitely have and and again but I, th- I think again going back to the location is just you know in the midwest there's just you know three powerhouse uh breweries you know two being in missouri and then iowa and uh just just absolutely crushing uh the the stout game so it's just sure uh Again, being influenced by them and and and, and taking an, an approach that kind of uh, uh, models um, some of the drinkability, I think, too of of those beers. Uh, mainly, I would say, as far as like viscosity and thickness, sure, and, and sure. kind of the the intense barrel character, the you know the two plus year age blends <laughs> and stuff like that. Right. So that's something that uh, we we actually just are getting to right now, where we're finally finally at like the 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 length but as far as like viscosity i've kind of always been able to have to work around that or with that as as kind of my main weapon my 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 main uh tool i guess uh in the bag but yeah uh and it's interesting again as things are moving and shifting yeah on on the terms of base beer side you have to be thinking two years ahead you know that of where things might go, yep. you know, because there's that kind of, of time, you know, it's not quite that bourbon that we're, we're going to throw it in uh, barrels and need to know what the demand is going to be 10 years from now. Yeah. But you still do need to have some idea of what people are going to be interested in. Absolutely. Um, and it's funny you say that we've, we've actually been, uh, kind of doing some of that right now that some of the guesswork, I guess, of kind yeah. of right now it's been all about thick, sweet, uh, stouts and stuff i'd say for the last uh two three years um but we've we've seen some some people kind of coming out of the woodwork asking for like you know the the little bit lower gravity the little bit more barrel focused uh not quite as thick and sweet so so we're kind of finding a balance there but we've definitely filled enough barrels at this point where now it now we feel safer going back down uh gravity just a little bit um to to for blending purposes but right. we'll kind of have enough in stock to kind of play however the market kind of needs us to play so it's uh, interesting what do you look i mean i'm curious like what are those barometers there i mean you know is it anecdotal customer asks are they untapped reviews is it you, you know where do you you know it's hard again you're trying to forecast yeah. but you also don't you know, figuring out what's the signal, what's the noise um, can be hard from a brewery perspective. It absolutely is hard. Uh, I think everything, any information that I get uh, is is something that I'll use. Uh, untapped uh, is, is obviously a, a, the most apparent kind of sure, immediate, uh, immediate yeah. thing that I can use. Um, but, you know, Facebook messages or or just chitter chatter in Facebook groups and stuff and mm-hmm. kind of stuff like that is, is really where I'm looking. Um, and quite frankly, I, I trust my palate too. Sure, so, sure. so I kind of lean on myself a lot and I just kind of have, I think I have a good instinct when it comes to those things. So it's just kind of, uh, I don't know if that means I'm an average beer consumer. Maybe it is. I don't know. <laughs> just uh, means it, you're in touch. Yeah, I'm in touch. So, yeah. so I definitely think I'm, I'm aware and, uh, I think I make pretty good judgment calls on that front, but I definitely take feedback from people. Sure. Uh, and I think you're right. Like we start to, you know, we're tasting different things all the time and you find your own palate, like intrigued by these other things yeah. now. And, uh, and right. Sometimes I think that leads from the, where that consumer thing, yeah, you know, consumer palate ends up. But, um, a lot of times, yeah, the rest catch up. But let's talk about, um, you know, constructing. Com- com- composition. Constructing, uh, you know, stouts. Where, yeah. uh, you know, as you're thinking about it, how, you know, res- designing recipes, mm-hmm. where do you start? Um, so what's funny is actually uh, a lot of the, a lot of people that I, I've done collaborations with and stuff. And, uh, you know, the, kind of the first thing is where do you start? What, what base malt do we want to start with? And I was kind of chuckle a little bit in my head but i kind of i make it knowing that it's, it's a little bit funny to me but i always just go like matt like it doesn't matter to me like as far like we can use pilsner malt we can use maris otter malt uh it, i don't i don't have a, a specific that's one not where the magic happens yeah i really don't think that on like a 35 plus play-doh stout that you're gonna taste the you know the difference between pilsner and maris otter maybe i you know maybe someone could argue with me and, and, and if you got uh two side by side I'd, I'd love to try 
uh, to see if there really is a difference. But over the over the years, I've brewed with uh, just about every normal, uh, you know, base malt from Maris Otter to yeah. Scott Malt to Pilsner or whatever. Uh, and I've just never uh, noticed a big difference between one or the other. So I think I think the the secret sauce is more in the specialty malts sure, and, sure. and stuff and, and some other factors uh, like like viscosity or, or gravity and stuff like that. Yeah. So how does that process work then? You know, you're thinking about barrel aging. Do you work from, um, you know, multiple recipes to kind of build blends? Do you think hey, this batch I want to try to do this with, with this kind of, uh, you know, adjunct ingredient in it. And so I want to try to, you know, shift a base beer this way. I mean, given that it's going into barrels, it's going to sit there for 12 to 24 months, yep. maybe more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a, like, like, how does that envisioning process work? Or do you have multiple kind of modes of operation around that? Yeah, uh, I, I, I don't want to overcomplicate it. I think, you know, going into barrels, I usually don't try to cloud my mind with any sort of like, this is going to get this, uh, you know, in 12 months or 24 months. Um, but as I'm tasting through barrels or or as the market's trending or uh, kind of that kind of thing is is that's where I start pulling influence from. So I try not to go in with like any like this is going to be this. Uh, too much. Uh, sometimes I've had to in the past just because it's, it's it had to be a little bit more planned. But now that we're over 200 barrels, it's it's kind of like all right, we got we have a little bit of yeah. uh, room to play with here. We can we don't have to have it 100 percent figured out today. We can figure this out tomorrow. Um, kind of see what direction the the beer takes. But we do have like probably six or seven recipes right now uh, of stout, um, very similar to each other, but um, uh, focusing on different grains, uh, specialty grains. So uh, or, or even malt suppliers. Uh, we actually just recently did one with like an all breeze recipe that were like uh, equivalents, if you will, to other uh, malts that I would use. So hmm. just to kind of see like what what that recipe uh, yeah. kind of could do. But uh, probably at the end of the day, probably won't notice a big difference. <laughs> um, but but still kind of cool. That's just kind of where we're at right now. Just like tinkering around with little things like that and seeing seeing if there are things that make differences. But what would some of those little other other differences be? Um, so like there's one malt that I used, uh, call it's a, a Weyermann product, uh, German, German brewery actually. Uh, but I use a, a malt that they, uh, that they make called a carafa special Two. uh, it's just very heavily chocolate, but it also it makes the beer like inky jet black. Right. Um, so we, we go pretty heavy with that. So like, uh, a, a similar product that Brees would have would be like, you know, black prince or midnight wheat, right. um, where it's like a, a, a bitterless, uh, kind of black malt, but we'll kind of see like, do we get the same chocolate notes and stuff like that? But, uh, Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> what, and what have you, I mean, have you been tasting, tasting some them? of those? Yeah, they're hard. I'm not going to lie. They're hard to, hard to really judge when they're super fresh. I don't think, I think those big stouts really take a few months to kind of even, even not on cask, uh, unless you're loading them up with like pastry stuff, uh, kind of hides some of those, uh, malt flavors, but I, it does take a little while. And these beers are ones that we just brewed like within the last like four to six weeks. Yeah. But, uh, we liked them. We liked them out of out of you know stainless going into uh, cask and stuff. But I wouldn't say I noticed anything necessarily uh, crazy or eye opening. Sure, but sure. It, but it was nice. It was pleasant. So yeah, uh, I'm excited. So what does your uh, typical specialty malt makeup then look like? If, yeah. if base malt's not a big thing for you, you yeah. Know, how do you build those layers? I mean, you know that the the power of this, especially when you're building stouts that have very high finishing gravities. Yeah. Uh, which is the what the what the audience what the people right. want right now, um, but building those kinds of layers of flavor, yeah. you know, into a stout takes uh, you know a lot of nuanced approach and, and even you know some subtle things that yep. you wouldn't think are that necessary within a beer that's that big. Yeah, how, how do you go about uh, kind of building those layers of flavor? Um, so I mean, we we really do take a pretty simple approach to. Uh, most of the stouts, like there's nothing, I don't think there's anything like crazy, maybe, maybe cause I've been doing it long enough that I just don't <laughs> think it's crazy, but yeah. I mean it, you know, we're, we're building with, uh, you know, any sort of base malt uh, again, doesn't matter sure. for me too much. Um, and then on top of that, uh, you know, we really, really want the viscosity, uh, me and a, a buddy of mine kind of call the, this effect almost that we get when we drink these beers, uh, as like a waterbed type of effect where it just kind of sloshes, uh, on in your mouth, but it's not sweetness. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a fine line between too much sweetness and then in viscosity. So, 
Uh, with that said, we we try to use some high protein uh, grains, typically oats, but we've done rye or, or uh, even wheat and stuff like that. But typically oats are what we'll, we'll fall on. That would be like our standard um, kind of recipe. Um, flaked oats, malted oats. <laughs> we, we used to use only flaked oats and we got burned uh, plenty of times on the mash, getting stuck mashes and yeah. having to call it quits and opening up a mash tun and have it go everywhere. So uh, finally learned my lesson enough times that we switched uh, to, we still use some malted oats, but we also use some, uh, I'm sorry, we use, we use some uh, flaked oats, but we also use malted oats, uh, which which kind of helped the the runoff. They've got husks and stuff in there. So yeah. it makes it a lot easier. What kind of percentage would uh, oats, you know, be and in we're probably recipe? We're probably like 20%, I bet. Yeah. Uh, off the top of my head, I, I would say close to 20%, which doesn't seem like a lot, but when you're talking you know, a, a full mash ton, you know, right. 1700 pounds, 20% starts to become a lot per yeah. barrel, uh, which is actually something I, I'll talk about here in a, a minute. But uh, I, I, I like to go pounds per barrel versus percentage. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, and then on top of that, then we're, we're going with uh, the carafa that I spoke about. So that's uh, going to get lots carafa of two carafa special too. It's a dehusk okay. carafa. So yeah, uh, it's, it's it doesn't add a lot of bitterness or astringent character, um, which I think is important. Um, and then, but you find that it also has a textural and, and it does. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. I think it actually does. Uh, it's, it is barley, but yeah, it definitely adds a, a texture thing huh. to it. And then on top of that, we're going, you know, a couple different two, two to three crystal malts, nothing crazy. Uh, I don't usually even go too dark, uh, anywhere from 15 up to like 90 level bond, uh, crystals. Um, I, I like the, the actual flavor of like caramel, uh, malt. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I feel like once you get a little too dark, you start getting pulling more fruit character and it's not, we do get a lot of fruit character in our beer, um, but it doesn't need any more. So I try to, <laughs> I try to keep the crystal and the caramel malts kind of in check and more in that, that like uh, 50 love a bond, 60 love a bond, which to me tastes like caramel, yeah. uh, which adds a nice backbone to the beer. Um, and then on top of that, we're, we're going with like a, a black malt and then uh, roasted, roasted barley. Um, I don't do any chocolate malt or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, maybe occasionally I think we've we've done one, but I usually reserve uh, chocolate malts for our porters um, and then roasted barley for our stouts. Uh, it's kind of my distinction between our, right. our two brands. So uh, that's my that's my quick distinction between the two, <laughs> the, you know, the two styles. Um, trying to think on top of that, we're we're going with. Uh, I think that was it. That's, that, I mean, that covers it. Yeah. You know, yeah. your caramel malts uh, and then three different dark malts between roasted black and the carafa yeah and then uh oats i mean really really yeah. it's simple uh and then yeah <laughs> so you mentioned you try to think about it as pounds per barrel rather than percentages yeah. uh, talk to me about that yeah that was something that uh actually years ago when i was getting into uh doing making stouts and i realized that at home i was having just terrible efficiency issues at compared to what you know on a, right. a, a professional brewing equipment um and what i realized was my efficiency differences would essentially if, I, if i'm pulling 60 percent, but i'm still using the same percentage of malt i'm actually now getting less of that other of the uh, typically typically i'll you know i'm trying to think of a good example here uh if i if i have black malt uh that, that let's just say makes up five percent i'm just spitballing a number uh five percent but my efficiency goes down i'm going to be pulling off of that small five percent amount so now my black malt actually just went down even less than five percent if that makes sense hmm. um so i've always kind of based everything off of pounds per barrel or pounds per gallon or however you want to whatever scale you're looking at and that way it makes it a little easier to scale up and down and then i just adjust my efficiency and then adjust with my base malt to hit that uh, hit my target gravities so uh i'm not gonna you know keep keep my black malt or whatever malts at a certain flavor threshold in the beer uh, uh i guess saturation point maybe sure, my, sure i'm trying to think of a good way to explain well, that's my interesting. thought process so, so you know that way you're not scaling in the same linear fashion across all of the malts Correct. that some of those specialty malts don't need to get scaled up they don't need to get scaled right but the base malt does scale based on that kind of efficiency exactly interesting yeah. okay so i've always taken that approach even with hazies and stuff you yeah know, uh you know when i'm talking about oats for hazies you know it's just kind of like scale it up uh just uh, a pound per gallon. And then I, uh, equate that into a pound per barrel and just make it, make the adjustment real quick. And then if my efficiency goes up, then I just pull back on my Pilsner, but I keep the oats, uh, you know, the same, uh, hmm. so depending on whatever, you know, recipe I'm 
I'm working with, but yeah, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, we're going to have to think about that as we, cause we do lots of scaling for recipes, yeah. you know, in the magazine yeah. and certainly scale linearly across all malts. Yeah. We might have to, uh, you know, kind of think about the way that we take that strategy as, yeah. as folks like you give us recipes and we bring them down from a commercial scale yeah. into a five gallon batch, you know, that, that keeping some of those ratios of specialty malts. Well, adjust. yeah, makes a lot of sense. I think part of it though, uh, could, could, uh, you know, the efficiency changes usually aren't drastic, but when yeah. we're talking like, you know, oats just tend to be a thing in pretty much every beer that we brew uh, nowadays, at least at phase three, uh, there's, there's way more beers that have oats, but oats just don't extract like barley. So, yeah. uh, we see huge efficiency, uh, uh, swings and stuff on, on, as soon as we're starting to add, you know, 20%, uh, oats or, or 40% right. oats, all of a sudden now your, your efficiency just kind of goes, uh, haywire. So that's kind of where, where I use that more. Um, yeah. but if you're, if you're talking like, a uh, a Pilsner, you're probably going to be, you know, roughly the same efficiency on a, on a homebrew scale as you would be on a, a larger scale. Right. Maybe, right. maybe. <laughs> Interesting. Well, let's also, let's talk about, uh, you know, viscosity, which I, you know, that'll get us into the conversations about boiling and time yeah. and the way mm-hmm. that you mash and all of those pieces. Before we do that, when it comes to brewing, nobody has your back like Clarion because their food grade lubricants are formulated to help make your brewing system 100% food safe. That means when you switch to Clarion, you can put the costly potential of contamination and recall out of your mind. All you need to worry about is brewing great beer. And since you already do that, well, it's more like focusing on business as usual. Go to ClarionLubricants.com to learn more. Um, you know, so you texture and this kind of waterbed effect is, yeah. a, is a thing for you. Um, Absolutely. you know, how does that weigh into mash and boil process? Are you, um, running multiple mashes for some of these barrel aged stouts? Are you, uh, engaging in this extraordinarily long boil, uh, 30 plus hour boil thing that, uh, folks like, uh, Derek at Moxa and Neil Weldworks are, yeah. have been swearing by, uh, you know, what is, what does that piece of it look like for you? Well, I, so I've never done anything you know, 30 hours or anything like that. We've, we've done in the, in the past, I've done, you know, six hour boils and stuff like that. Five hour boils, uh, nothing really that I can remember longer than that. Um, so if I need to make an adjustment on, uh, gravity, then we're not afraid to use, uh, like a DME or, or yeah, usually a DME is, is typically what we'll lean on. Uh, we've used, uh, uh, liquid extract, uh, but typically we'll, we'll honestly just go into a DME, and uh, I think that provides a lot of the same character um, that you get from the longer boil. Mm. Um, and we've done kind of we have done side by sides of uh, double mashing versus single mashing with the adjustment of uh, the DME. And and I still stick to that. Like at first, actually, I forgot my my rule of uh, pounds per barrel. And we we were uh, we would do two mashes that were identical. And I realized like, oh crap, like we're still, we're still only getting, you know, 15 barrels, but now we just use twice the amount of roasted barley in two mashes, you know? Uh, so we had to, we quickly changed that and, uh, <laughs> you know, started doing half and half of the specialty malts and we're able to just increase the, the base malt. Uh, I think we did that one time. I, I, I made a mistake on that, but, uh, yeah, uh, we've, we've done, you know, double mashes. We've done, uh, single mashes with, uh, DME as a adjustment, um, and, and quite frankly, I've, I've never noticed, uh, a big difference on either, yeah. uh, either of the, of the two, um, not saying that longer boils like don't work. I just think for us, it, it makes sense. And, and usually we need the brew house pretty quick. We're, you know, right. we're doing eight to 10 turns a week. Uh, and, and it's just kind of like more of a, we need, we need like to keep moving, uh, to, to keep things moving your, your approach to to thick with two c's uh does not have to have a 30 hour boil and yeah. but there, you, you still accomplish that and yeah but you say that is really that uh um uh, you know kind of a high protein malt piece that does that uh, um yep. is there a you know evaporation component in the barrels that also contributes to that uh probably i would i, would, I mean yes i would, I would say 100 percent uh in the in the casks but i also don't think uh i think we're able to achieve that even on like fresh stuff yeah um i think i really think that it comes back to for us uh is like the the high percentage of like oats or or rye or or wheat depending on the recipe usually again usually oats uh, i think definitely have a bigger impact on the mouthfeel than the sweetness sometimes yeah maybe not all the time i'd say i'd say i'd say 
I'd say they're both as equally important uh, for for us. What's your uh, what's your typical uh, you know gravity goal starting gravity for uh, you know a beer that's going to go into barrels and do you have and also then like you know general IBU guidelines what kind of bitterness you know are you, are you looking for because over that many years stuff's going to knock down and change. Yep. Um, so kind of a cool question uh, for sorry your first question as far as uh, gravity uh, we're looking usually between thirty five and thirty eight thirty eight is sort of becoming uh we're trying to move back down to 35 we were we were hitting like 37 38 yeah. for for probably a year uh at phase three um but again we're kind of anticipating this uh respect for not needing it to be <laughs> right right an insanely sweet beer uh so we're trying to again um move that down just a little bit so uh we've been we've been between 35 and 37 i would say though uh but with kind of an anticipation of keeping it on the lower end of that uh which which uh, is still absolutely massive when you when you kind of sure, rewind sure. uh five years even uh you know 30 play-doh is huge so sure sure so these these beers are beers no like means. perennial maman or yeah. 30 plato beer typically yeah. you know and, and yeah yeah now you've got some brewers pushing 40 play-doh yep. i've seen i've seen the the instagram pictures i've seen those, those instagram there. pictures too <laughs> like yeah <laughs> uh we haven't gotten there yet what think, are you doing i think though? we did a 38 play-doh uh beer or 30, 38 and a half or something. I think we almost yeah. hit 39 once just to correct a, a batch that had lower efficiency right before it. So, but, but yeah, no, no, uh, no expectation for me to, to really push much higher than that. At least now, again, if the market talks, the market will talk, but yeah, I think we're, I think it's safe to assume we're kind of in a, in a, no pun intended, a sweet spot. So, uh, we'll, we'll kind of stay there. But, uh, and then as far as IBUs, um, I don't look at IBUs too, too much, but, we for for stuff going into casks uh ibs in addition to the the alcohol component of the beer uh i'm using them more as a preservative as more of like a safety Mm -hmm. thing like hey this is gonna be sitting for two you know two years sure sure. uh what can we do to kind of help preserve it um so we'll we'll usually go a little higher and only still only like 45 to to maybe 50 ibs for a if it's 100 percent that batch is going into casks we'll we'll tend to you know, beyond that 45 range. Um, and then if it's something fresh, we'd go a little lower. We go, uh, just about 35, I would say. Um, and that's really, that's really it. But as far as balance and stuff like that goes, we're only looking for, uh, the roasted aspects of the beer. Sure. I use, I use those components. That produces the bitterness. Exactly. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's kind of my approach. It kind of always has been, but how do you think about that? I mean, I'm, you know, as you're looking at software, thinking about the bitter, you know, contribution of some of these, you know, dark, you know, black malts, you know, and what, you know, you, you can't think about it just in IBU terms, but right. you are envisioning how all of those pieces of bitterness are going to work together. Correct. Uh, so I think that goes into my expected final gravity um, and knowing what the sweetness level is and how much balance there should need to be. Uh, but I think the bigger part of here is probably just uh, experience working with those malts and knowing yeah. like how much, uh, roast or bitterness or or whatnot uh i'm gonna get from you know x amount of black malt or x amount sure. of carafa so uh i think i think a lot of it comes down to experience but yeah it's it's just worked so we kind of sure, <laughs> sure. do it what's uh what's fermentation look like on these uh gigantic uh 38 or 37 yeah. uh play-doh uh you know beers now you're talking about a lot to ferment yep. and uh you know wh- what's what's the method of getting through that yeah so uh i'd say for for a good amount of time now we've actually just switched over to uh, a dry yeast uh we use uh, uso5 which is an american mm-hmm. ale yeast um i preferred that just because uh the oxidation requirements are less mm. um so so it's a little bit more of a uh i guess just easier you don't have to think about it as much but also from a sanitary standpoint um just yeah. knowing that i'm pushing a fresh pitch i'm spraying the outside of a bag with alcohol uh and able to you know kind of keep things just super sterile it's a a generation one it's not harvested off of another tank that i'm relying on that tank to have been cleaned and sanitized and might be an ipa or some sort you know of something but uh and it's worked really well we get you know good attenuation with it uh clean uh profile um so kind of keep it simple there but yeah uh we're we're typically 21 days uh on stainless uh we're fermenting probably in a week, I would say, for the most part. 
um because uh, again they are they are big and, and we're pushing sometimes like into the 14 maybe even low 15 percent uh abv range some sometimes lower sometimes like 12 and a half to 13 yeah. but uh there have been times where we've that yeast will get us up to like 14 huh. uh, which is uh even a little higher than 14 yeah, t- 21 days um, in the last, I'd say half of that time, though, and there is more of a conditioning phase. We're just waiting for, uh, we're slowly chilling it and trying to let uh, yeast fall out and, and whatnot. We do have a centrifuge, so we actually centrifuge mm. now going into cask uh, to remove yeast. Uh, you just don't want try to get as much yeast out of there sure, so it's not sure. just sitting in there. Um, although I will say I've had some beers that I can definitely tell were on yeast. Um and they autolysized just a little bit, and sometimes it works. Yeah. Uh, in a stout, it, dep- it probably depends on the the grain bill and stuff. Not something that I want to like really uh, try to do. And I think it's a it's lot risky. of luck. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't think there's like a, a an exact method to doing it, but I've definitely tasted right. beers. Do you that, get umami or do you get soy sauce? Right. One's good, one's not so exactly. good. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, but with that said, we try sure. to remove as much yeast uh, as possible. So we'll run it through a, a centrifuge on the way into uh, filling casks. Uh, and that's been new for us for uh, about a year. I'd say we started doing that. Mm. Yeah. So anything else you do for yeast health to, to keep pulling through there? Not really. No, Wow. no, it's literally, hey. uh, we, we pitch probably pretty heavy. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of a quick, like, uh, you know, ratio here, but, uh, it'd probably be something like, uh, 5,000 grams in a, in a 15 barrel batch. That's that high. Yeah. Um, so it's a pretty high, um, but it works. So and they can go straight into this generally high, you know, high sugar. I mean, that's a stressful environment for yeah. yeast. And then they, you know, are pushing there. You don't have to step it up or anything. No, Just, man. No, we don't even hydrate it or anything. We wow. literally sprinkle it in. Uh, for huh. doing two turns, we try to get it in in between the second, uh, first and second right. turn. So it kind of sloshes maybe a little bit or kind of sure. helps mix in a little bit. But yeah, typically we're just end of the day, up on a ladder, dumping it in that's it and then it's it's usually ripping uh within 24 hours i would say and the then uh, what, what do you you know so say you take that 35 play-doh stout what does it go into barrels at um depends um we we've been playing around again with the final gravity so no matter no matter what we want to start at that 35 to 38 um uh, but we can manipulate through mash temp and mm-hmm. uh maybe even uh sugars uh, like if we, if we want to dry it out a little bit more, we right. can add, you know, some, some simple sugar, uh, to ferment out and get a little bit more alcohol. But I would say anywhere right now, we're probably feels nuts, but I know it's not because I've talked to plenty of brewers <laughs> that are doing it, but, uh, uh, I would say we're anywhere between 15 and 18 for the most part, but not to say that we haven't yeah. gone lower or a little higher than that, but yeah. that's, that's probably the range that, uh, we're, we're usually, I thought you were going to give me a higher number. But because uh, so that actually sounds kind of reasonable. We've hit twenty yeah, on, on occasion. Yeah. Twenty was the number yeah. I had in my head. Yeah. yeah, but but that's that's kind of again trying to trying to wean away from that a little bit and get a get more a little bit more drinkable. Uh, sure, sure. But, but they do stand up to to barrels quite well, especially when you're talking twenty four right. months and you're you're pulling a lot of tannin. A lot of stuff's happening in that barrel for twenty four months. We're not uh, temperature controlled. Uh, it has heat during during the, the winter, right. but uh, if you've ever been to Chicago or anywhere in the Midwest, you know, big temperature swings uh, between each season. And uh, I think we kind of enjoy that and play off of that a little bit, and uh, especially even humidity uh, changes too, right. which I think probably has a little bit bigger impact than even just the temperature, just drying out the wood a lot. Holds up the, the higher, higher Play-Doh stuff definitely holds up to those like two, two years of aging. Yeah. Uh, better than I think like a lower gravity would. And that's your goal for aging now to try to hit around two years. Uh, I think right now I'm probably closer to 18 to 20 months would be my yeah. ideal spot. I think two years starts to get a little bit rich, um, which, which is nice. Occasionally I, I don't mind a beer that has that much time on it, but, uh, 24 plus months Maybe a starts good blending to, component, but yeah. not something you want to drive an entire beer with. Probably. Although one in two, uh, you know, one of the ones that was just scored, uh, that was a hundred, that was, it was a blend of two casts that were both, uh, on the same rack. Yeah. One and two our first and second barrel, uh, for 26 months. Wow. Um, and, it, and that held up on its own again, it, it worked. Um, but it's not something I'm typically going to try to do on, on its own all the time. That right. was, that was more of a uh, specialty kind of thing. And that's one that'll just be sold in the tap room. Right? Correct. Yeah. 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 That was a tap room on premise only. Uh, you got one of the few bottles that ever left the, <laughs> the building. Um, but yeah, that, yeah, typically I would say 18 months is kind of my sweet spot. Uh, 
in in the past i was i would probably have said 15 months but uh with these bigger uh beers as they've gotten bigger i think we've had to add a little bit more time to get yeah. the balance correct so i think right now 18 to 20 months would be like my my good blend uh whether i'm taking barrels that are 24 or uh you know 12 months and i'm averaging right. 18 or, or whatever so uh, that's let's kind talk, of where we're at. Yeah. Let's talk about choosing and selecting barrels. You know, yeah. That process and, you know, how you go and, uh, you know, age of bourbon, mm-hmm. um, different spirits that you choose, you know, all make an impact there. Yep. How do you, uh, what's that process look like for you? Yeah. I, I mean, I wish you I got competition in there in that Chicago area yeah. for, uh, for barrels. We do. Yeah. Um, I haven't ever really been a big proponent of, 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 overthinking the barrels and i think yeah. a lot of it goes into marketing i think a lot of it lands on just like marketing <laughs> sure, the barrels sure, as, sure. you know this is this barrel this is that barrel not saying that some of them are leveraging good. the hype of that uh, that bourbon that might have been in it before yes yes um but i will say that i've i've had some some barrels that um do live up to that hype yeah um but more often than not man i'm surprised by the ones that i'm just like really like this random buffalo trace barrel that you know came on a you know in a load of trucks with sure, a, load of, sure. a load of barrels with you know 20 other casts that we just ordered and this you know these three taste really really good like um so try not to buy into too much of that um but but there's there is something there i i, I will say um but yeah i'm not really selecting as far as like going out in the field and doing any of that i wish i i could do that uh just haven't made any established sure. any relationships really with any distilleries uh where i could uh i guess there's one uh one that i've i've worked with uh ch distillery uh who who was using some mgp stuff uh so kind of selecting through them with them um which have turned out really good yeah as, and then as far as like uh, age goes um i don't mind working with the younger like barrels yeah. um I, I think that there's a lot of life left in them sure. um but using that as an ingredient knowing that we're going to get a lot of uh you know wood back from those barrels right uh, something that we kind of make sure that we go into so um you know anywhere from you know the four-year barrel on on the minimum but i I would probably say uh an eight to ten year is is kind of like a mark that we probably find most uh satisfying when we're when we're pulling a nail and and it's out of the uh a cask that's around that age length is usually ones that kind of make us go like wow like this this turned out great so Thing it probably makes sense. It's kind of in that middle range, so you're not getting too much barrel, but uh, you know, it's, it's just more balanced. I think maybe. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, we've used barrels. I, you know, I had a Heaven Hill 23 year old barrel uh, that we used as part of our blend in our uh, barley wine that we just released a few months back, and uh, that one, that one was good. You know, it. But it. But I think it. It worked well in that style of beer too. The wood that was left wasn't necessarily uh, bourbony. It was a lot of tannin yeah um and i think that worked with having like a sweet kind of barley wine that doesn't have the roast to provide some of that like tannin or, or right uh bitterness if you will so it worked really well in that aspect as, as a blending component as you're tasting through barrels and trying to i mean what does that schedule look like for you how often are you evaluating these things and uh you know or or it, you know do you and how does that strategy then kind of move out from there yeah so we're not tasting as often as we probably should be um i would (laughs) i would like to try our casks uh probably you know go through specific casts every month and have uh rotation of maybe trying 20 at a time uh between like two days or something haven't really gotten into that schedule (laughs) but we should uh, it is yeah um but it is important but i think right now uh basically i'm just using a spreadsheet um and i'm kind of getting an idea of when barrels are coming up to like that sweet spot of of 18 or i'm trying to find a blend of okay well i have these two two casts that are 24 months and then i got this cast that's this and then i have a bunch that are kind of right in the middle that might sound like a good blend let's go try that let's go see kind of how that works um but when we're doing adjuncts it's really hard to put too much stock into what the barrel is is kind of providing at sure, that point because you're gonna mess it all up again <laughs> exactly i mean sure. i mean it's it's sure, sad but sure. it's it is the truth yeah, yeah. i know and a lot I, of i say that jokingly i mean you're you're adding more layers of flavor and we it's, are yeah it's yeah but uh, but, but yeah. it will certainly cover up some of the nuance exactly. of, of those things yeah. yeah yeah so when we're doing blends i would say for adjuncted stuff we can go into it with more uh i'm looking at a spreadsheet and i'm saying okay this this should work let's make sure let's try it make sure we liked the blend um but nine times out of ten there's there's no changes once we try that 
Uh, sometimes it, it might be a little hotter uh, than we like. That's typically what we found in the, in the past is that we go to try them and that there's just an excessive amount of uh, like whiskey heat. Yeah. So we'll we'll go back and look and see what barrel that might. Maybe we can swap two of those barrels out with uh, two barrels that were a little thicker and we'll try that and see if it works better. But for the most part, like I said, nine, nine out of ten times we're trying a cask uh, blend based off of looking at a spreadsheet <laughs> is it unrom- I'm not try- sure it's not sure. romantic but it's the truth uh but when we're talking about like a beer like minushi or something that might have less adjunct like uh this this Unoya here on the table uh with Ugandan vanilla um where there's a single component that that isn't going to hide and we really need that component to like work with whatever other flavors a little bit more thought is going to go into that uh, especially with Minushi, uh, which is a non-adjunct uh, stout, so all barrel, hmm. all stout. Um, that that we're gonna make sure works, you know, on its own can right. stand on its own. The blend tastes as good as we can we can possibly make it. Uh, so so those are different, but yeah, the the heavily adjuncted one, the 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 ones that have more more pastry type flavors usually tend to work out just fine kind sure. of kind of how they are yeah so. yeah how do you uh how do you make some of those ingredient calls you know then you know, you've you've got this beer barrel you know in barrels you pull it out um you know different brewers work different ways some folks are led by the the flavors of the beer other folks are you know, you mentioned it before sometimes it's driven by you know ideas that uh you see other folks do or, you know, using, and you want to try and experiment and play with that too. Or you see flavors that just, you know, pop out in life and, uh, you know, think, Oh, we should kind of explore that with a beer. What is, what's that creative process around, uh, ingredients adjuncting look like for you? It really changes a lot. Honestly, uh, we're not, we're not doing too many releases a year, uh, as far as like adjuncted, uh, anything a year is, uh, or stouts, barrel aged stouts. I would say we're doing four, so, I mean, we, we have like three months in between yeah. and three months doesn't sound like a long time, but three months in the market, all of a sudden now there's some new hot flavor, whether it's banana <laughs> and a stout or, right. or, or some sort of new cookie that just came out that everyone's, you know, but I try to listen to, again, listen to the market uh, as best I can. Um, but we, we try to also, uh, use ingredients that we're comfortable with. I try not to get too fancy with it. Like. I know something works. We're just going to, we're going to kind of go down that road instead of yeah. trying to try to reinvent the wheel. And, you know, coffee works well in, in a stout. Coconut right. nibs work good in a stout. I love working with coconut. Uh, that's probably my favorite adjunct to use. Yeah. Not trying to reinvent the wheel and just kind of, I don't, I don't necessarily, again, I'm not like tasting the barrel and going, uh, you know, oh, like this has like a, a note of this that I think might play off of that. Um, it just never, never tends to work out that way. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it's a much more romantic story if you it tell really it that is. way, Sean. It really is. Uh, I will say, so So we have done that. And, and again, going back to the Unoya 5 that's uh, here on the table, that was conceptualized pretty early on. We knew we had a pretty good idea that that was going to end up get, getting married with vanilla. I didn't know what vanilla at, the, at that you know specific time when it was brewed. You know, that one is a rye imperial stout aged in rye whiskey cast. So the, the, we already had a play of like we want to do rye on rye and then knowing that that's going to play well with vanilla that does really well in chicago exactly so so that that was more thought out in and kind of brewed you know from from brew day through cask selection through adjunct selection kind of thought out uh, a little bit more uh carefully yeah and and, uh so so we do some of that it's just you know again i'm not (laughs) I, i i can't tell a romantic story it's just not not usually that doesn't work out that way but but yeah there's that Midwestern nose to the grindstone work ethic where yeah. I don't need to yeah, get overly uh, uh, flowery about uh, yes. our story around that. Let's talk a little bit about how you use adjuncts. You mentioned yeah. that you love coconut as an ingredient. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you go about you, you know, using that coconut uh, in terms of volume, in terms of preparation, in terms of kind of maximizing flavor extraction and aroma yeah. in barrel-aged beers? Um, so with uh, coconut, Traditionally, I had always uh, liked a blend of toasted with raw, um, and I would kind of toast it to a point where what I was toasting was thick enough that the top top would be you know a darker brown, and then kind of in the middle it was uh, pretty much untoasted, hmm. uh, and then the bottom might be a little bit toasted. And uh, you know that that started back at 
at, at Ram phase one, um, you know, toasting stuff in a pan and throwing it in a corny keg and injecting that. At into least they a had a keg. kitchen there where you could do that. They did. Yeah. That, so that was, a, that was a huge thing, uh, that they, they had that and I took advantage of that. And that's kind of how I, I taught myself how to use coconut when I was at, uh, you know, homebrew level on my stove. Yeah. Um, so, so similar approach there, but then through the years, uh, obviously scaling up, making bigger batches, making bigger batches, uh, that kind of changed. So it went from pan toasting, which I actually really liked a lot into, uh, throwing it in the oven and mm. kind of toasting it that way on big sheets. Uh, and that's where that I did that for a while. Um, and then we actually, uh, found a good ratio of toasted coconut, uh, so we actually are buying pre-toasted coconut yeah, and then uh, coconut flakes uh, that we buy that are super oily, really, really good. Actually, like, yeah, like, like I, I like them a lot. And they the, the raw coconut aspect, I think, provides a lot of the nose and the, 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 the actual coconut flavor. But the, mm. the toasted coconut aspect uh, brings on more of a uh, buttery kind of quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh pastry quality i suppose right um, right but but re- almost enhances but we we use uh, uh a smaller ratio of toasted versus uh uh raw on uh flaked coconut mm. um but yeah so we're using anywhere between probably four and five hundred pounds at a time when we're using coconut um so we actually had to have a uh infusion vessel uh, yeah. made yeah so uh you know a couple couple of my friends uh you know Derek at Moxa and uh Wes and Brandon over at uh Bottle Logic have a uh same infusion vessel that I had I saw it there and I was like uh you know this is awesome and uh, actually saw it at Bottle Logic and uh basically heard their testimonials and we were like all right we got on the phone with the manufacturer and they we t- kind of changed a couple little things and told them the size that we needed yeah. and it's been working great, but basically it just recirks, uh, has a, it's like a, it's like a small, uh, mash ton, a 10 barrel mash ton basically on wheels that we can roll around. It has a great in there with, you know, multiple draw points and in some whirlpool type, uh, mm-hmm. ports on the side. So we're able to kind of move that and it just spins and, yeah. um, that's been great. Um, but we use that for pretty much everything now, uh, with w- whether it's injecting fruit into a beer, yeah. whether it's uh, adjuncting with coconut or cocoa nibs or coffee or whatever, uh, it all kind of is able to just go in that, which is awesome. Sure. Yeah, that's that's kind of that. Uh, but we'll, what we'll typically do is, you know, we'll take the clean beer, uh, so either centrifuged or, or freshly out of cask or whatever, um, and then we'll we'll load up the infusion vessel. And then depending on what it is, usually we're looking at like a three to three to five day t- sort of steep time. Yeah. But we try to make a concentrate. So uh, we don't we don't put all the beer in there. We'll huh. make a concentrate. We'll inject that back into the bright tank where the, the beers, the rest of the beer is sitting, taste it and then kind of bounce it back and forth uh, as many times or, or until so we stop getting it. With your infusion tank, you're not just circulating out of your primary tank back, you know, constantly you're. Just, just kind of making a just bringing it in five barrel it, concentrate. So, oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. And we'll, and like I said, we'll bounce back and forth huh. until flavor's good, or until we're like, yeah, we're not getting any more out of this. Like, time to redose coconut or redose whatever the, the adjunct is uh, until we do get the the flavor in the in the main beer kind of where we want it. But I've been a big proponent of uh, higher amount of adjunct in less time. I feel huh. like it's uh, a little bit more explosive flavor, yeah. uh, and you don't pull you almost pull like what's on the surface. Uh, and sometimes the stuff underneath the surface is a little astringent, especially with coconut mm. as, as you, as you let it steep, uh, right. you pull some like bitterness and stringent kind of flavors. It's kind of like coconut. coffee in the same way. Yeah. Like that, uh, you know, rather than grinding it, just go whole bean yep. and use more of it and take it off quick. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. We've, we've actually been doing whole bean. Uh, I had been mainly ground coffee, uh, for years, but then we, uh, recently decided to start doing whole bean. It's been, been great but yeah. yeah same thing like you have to uh, increase the dosage and uh for, for the contact time it's about the same uh, as we were doing for uh ground coffee we just have to use a lot more of it right right uh, but we like the flavor profile a little bit better any other uh, adjuncts uh you know that you uh, you love using well cocoa nibs uh sure. have been they've treated me very well over the the last several years uh actually had a, a gabf metal for a, a chocolate stout uh which was the the stout that i was, I was saying earlier the cocoa chaos um, so that, that one, uh, or, or cocoa nibs definitely are, are something that feel very in my wheelhouse and yeah, I feel yeah. comfortable using, um, we use, uh, Ghana cocoa nibs. Uh, they just provide a beautiful, like, uh, milk chocolate t- type of flavor. Yeah. Um, and again, 
um, kind of going back to the uh, larger quantity, I think uh, gives that like explosive chocolate nose uh, that people people just absolutely love. And again, with the, the sweetness, it really comes across as like milk chocolate. Sure. So and it's oily, so yeah. it's like adds yeah. that viscosity. Yeah. Anything those, special to the you know time and temperature? No, we've we've played a lot with uh, with that. Uh, for the most part, I would say I prefer uh, room temp for for almost everything except for coffee. Um, we do room temperature for pretty much everything. Uh, I, I just think it extracts well. Um, coffee, I think when it's a little warmer, you get a little bit more roasty bitterness off of it. So we try to do that uh, on the, a, a little cooler. But yeah. uh, that infusion vessel is pretty hard to move around. Our cooler is not right next to our uh, cellar. So getting it, moving it back and right. forth is a little hard. It's not quite called jacketed. So uh, kind of just have to do it that way. But I actually prefer it that way anyway. So. Is there an ingredient that you're excited to work with uh, in the near term? Yeah. Um, so we actually, we did a, a beer with uh, Other Half. Uh, we brewed a stout. Um, they actually just released theirs last weekend. Our timeline didn't quite line up, but um, with uh, Wild Thai Banana. So I've I've used banana They've in a stout They've taken you one down time. the banana train. I know, oh, I know. Oh, gosh. Well, Sam was like. They've corrupted another one. <laughs> Sam goes, yeah, you know, you want to do a Oreo banana stout? And I'm like sure like, like why not <laughs> so i was like but i'm not gonna lie i was like i'm I've, i'm not very familiar with banana i've used it once and i quite frankly i didn't i didn't like it a lot but i don't think it was right it was the banana it's just i didn't i didn't use maybe the right banana and stuff so uh but yeah we got uh some wild thai banana that that we'll be using so i'm excited to use that for the first time that should be fun cool, cool. yeah as we zoom out what's the uh what's the big picture look like for phase three what's the What's the what's the goal? When you, you know, what's success look like? What are you all hoping to achieve? And when, when will you know that you've achieved it? We don't have huge plans uh, as far as like from a growth aspect. I think we're very comfortable where we're at right now. Um, obviously, we, we're going to need to grow over the next several years, and uh, just to kind of be able to offer to our employees like what we what we want to offer them. And right. because obviously, cost of living goes up, so we need to sell more beer. I mean, we could we could raise the prices on the beer, but that's harder. We're already kind of on the, on the, uh, higher end, I, I would say right. of, of most of our beers. So that, that really isn't an option. So eventually we'll have to make a little bit more beer. Um, right. but right now we're pretty much rolling, running, uh, full steam. Uh, typically we're running out of fermenters and stuff. That's been the challenge is just trying to, uh, dictate, uh, or work, work with the schedule and that, but yeah, not, not really trying to move too much more beer. Um, but we're, you know, just trying to really get things dialed in and, uh, right have a consistency uh right now this 2021 it was kind of the year of of that is uh you know we're building out a lab right now currently it should be should be actually done in about a week or two um got some pretty cool equipment alkalizer and pcr and all the plating stuff that we need uh uh so full-on full-on lab and um just to be able to do all that in-house and have a being be in touch with that aspect of of our of our brewery um we're also distributing pretty heavily uh in state we self-distribute so just doing our part, making sure right. that beer that we're putting out on shelves is, is stable and good and uh, that kind of thing. Um, so so I think that's probably the immediate plans um, is just kind of settling in where we've gotten. We went through a, an absolute insane, you know, growth phase. Right. Uh, you know, get, we went from brewing maybe 1,500 barrels a year for our um, pacing 1,500 barrels a year for our first nine months. And then that jumped up to 3,500 barrels and then purchased all the equipment and then you know now we're we're right around six thousand so it's just like we haven't ever had time to kind of reflect and kind of put everything in place that we wanted to so i think we started realizing that and like just saying like okay like we need to make sure before we like keep running like we need to like take a look at around what's around us and make sure we're like setting ourselves up correctly here but uh that goes with like expansion as far as like just having the footprint to like have uh certain things lab right uh, obviously takes up uh, a good amount of that sure, and sure uh having a, a a nicer conference room so everyone in the manager team kind of can get together and we can all be on the same page communication is something that we are like very very uh high on we, we make sure that, that that's uh something that that is always done we, we do weekly meetings and there's yeah. multiple things going on and stuff just making sure everyone's on the same page but yeah, nothing, nothing crazy in the plans. Uh, like you said, we, we started uh, Lowell's uh, Seltzer. So that's something that we're kind of, we've been exploring and we, we anticipate working uh, very well for us and kind of making sure that we're, we're approaching that and kind of following through with that throughout next year and keeping our ear to the ground and watching trends and trying to be a little bit different with, with how we present it. I love that it's a brewery most hyped and known for barrel-aged stouts. Mm-hmm. 
where you've started a hard seltzer, fruit, smoothie hard seltzer brand on yeah. the side. But one of the things you're also excited about is being able to brew more lagers yes. and uh, classic styles and yep. pub-inspired beers, um, you know, for that kind of crowd also, just to, to kind of keep it interesting for you too. Uh, it keeps it interesting. And again, it keeps it keeps us in check, man. Like get down these rabbit holes and you start reading reviews on some big old stout that has marshmallow or this or that in it and kind of got to remember like where did where did this all start it started with like an amber ale or something you know right like right. seven or eight years ago or whatever um so just kind of keeping that in our in our minds but uh yeah we have dedicated a lot of uh focus on on the lager program uh we have we have a couple lager 30 barrel lagering tanks uh and then on top of that we do a uh a, a beer p3 pills um which has been very popular over the last uh, year and a half um for us but it's just just an american lager it's just that beer that when we just want a beer for kind sure of, kind of beer yeah i uh, don't have to think about it always always making sure we have something classic going is has been pretty important to us whether it's a west coast ipa or uh a belgian wit beer that we did uh you know just just always making sure we're doing stuff like that we don't get too lost in the in the haze and the and the sure. uh the stouts i think that's a great place to bring this to a close gnd chillers will hit 28 degrees without breaking a sweat sativa is perfect for hazy ipa and other hop forward beers Old Orchard prides themselves on consistent product and reliable supply. Pro Brew has the equipment, systems, and technology to take your brewery production to the next level and make your system 100% food safe with Clarion Lubricants. Of course, if you'd like to support this podcast, go to beerandbring.com. Click on the subscribe button. If you're a pro brewer, we have all access pro subscriptions that'll get you the first digital access to great content from folks like uh, Ben Keen and Kate Bernat and Stan Hieronymus and others. Uh, as well as print copies of the magazine, video, all that other fun stuff. Check that out at beerandbring.com. Uh, Sean, if people want to learn more about Phase 3, where do they uh, where do they find you? Yeah, uh, Phase 3 Brew um, is all, all on all the socials. And then our website, phase3brewing.com. Uh, Thanks for talking to me on the podcast. Yeah, Cheers. absolutely. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.